Hi, and thanks for hitting the snooze button. My name's Neil Headley. Welcome to episode five, and plenty to tell you about as far as this episode's concerned. Our guest is Dr. Linnell Schneeberg. She's the author of a new book called Become Your Child's Sleep Coach. She's an assistant professor at the Yale School of Medicine and the director of the Behavioral Sleep Program at the Connecticut Children's Medical Center. We talk a fair bit here about our kids and their sleep, but... There's a lot of cross-pollination between adults sleeping and kids sleeping, and we'll get into that too. We also talk about that episode of Mad About You, where Paul and Jamie sit outside the baby's room torturing themselves over whether to let the baby cry it out. We talk about the things that doctors tend to get wrong when they're treating sleep issues, not just in adults, but also in kids. We talk about the things that uh, you can do. We talk about modeling, for example, better behaviors for our kids. There's a lot of places to go here. So without further ado, Dr. Linnell Schneeberg. First of all, I want to thank you for making time for this today. I really appreciate it. You are so welcome. Thank you for inviting me. The question that everyone gets at the beginning of every episode of the snooze button, uh, you know, be they uh, a rock star or a neuroscientist or some combination of those two things, uh, everybody gets the same question. How'd you sleep last night? (laughs) I have a slight cold, so I didn't sleep as well as normal, but usually I'm a very good sleeper. So what now, what does a person who studies sleep and advises other people on sleep for a living, what do you do on those nights when you can't? Because I'm always fascinated by the responses to this question. Yeah. So in my book, it's really important to have something to do near the bed that you find relaxing and distracting and sedentary, of course, um, to distract your mind a bit when you cannot sleep. So the best thing and the most classic thing is a book and a book light. Interesting, but not a lot, not a book light that has any blue light in it. And of course, we'll get into a blue light, I assume, in depth uh, as, as the conversation unfolds. Um, I want to uh, tell you about my 14 month old, which sure. I know is a little bit younger than is in your practice. Um, we lucked out <laughs> because she goes down every night at about six o'clock Fantastic. and wakes up the following morning at about six o'clock. Fantastic. Right? Yeah. Um, and, and that includes probably a two hour nap uh, somewhere in the middle of the day. And maybe depending on how packed full of stuff her day is, uh, maybe even another quick like lie down for 45 minutes or an hour in there. I mean, we at our end credit it to this gadget we've got that I think is very common in America. It's pretty rare to come across here in Canada. Uh, but it's the snoo. I'm I'm assuming you've seen this thing. I have absolutely seen it. I've absolutely seen it. But I, I think your daughter might, has she mostly outgrown it at 14 months? Yeah. So she was, by the time we pulled her out of the snoo at six months, because you're only, exactly. they're only supposed to stay in it until they're six months old. That's she right. was busting out eight hours a night by then. Yes. Um, and transitioned over to her crib really easily and... Yeah, has been averaging 12 hours a night ever since. So that's for the last eight months. And we mentioned this to other parents and and right out of the gate, they hate us. They hate <laughs> us with the fire of a thousand suns. You're the envy of your friends. The reason that that happened for you is that the snoo kept you from, I'm going to use a very unwieldy term here, okay? It's called a negative sleep onset association. Wow. Yeah. And that's a very psychological sounding term, but I'm going to unpack it for you, okay? 
a sleep onset association is basically a thing that you need in order to go to sleep, right? So some babies get used to being rocked or bottle fed or breastfed or sung or driven around in the car or being patted on the back or any of those things. But the snoo did all that work for you and your baby learned how to fall asleep without being rocked or fed or driven around in the car. So when, and it's called a negative sleep onset, I'm sorry, yeah, a negative sleep onset association just because the word negative just means I need a parent to do this, right? So the snoo. Interesting. Yeah. So the snoo helps your daughter learn how to fall asleep without any of those. And the lay term for these is a sleep crutch without any of those sleep crutches. So when it came time to put her in the crib, she already knew how to fall asleep in a safe, flat surface without any help from a parent. So, I mean, obviously the gold standard of what do I do if my toddler, my three-year-old or whatever it is, can't fall asleep is coming to see you or someone like you if you're in a different part of the country. But if I don't necessarily have ready access to somebody, if my child has gotten to three or four years old and they're a lousy sleeper, am am I kind of screwed by that point? Or is it, is it too late to start trying to... No. rehabilitate their sleep? How, how young do we need to start making sure that they're on the right path? Sure. So in the, in the field of sleep medicine and in the literature, we all agree, pediatricians and sleep medicine people agree, that six months is, quote, the perfect time to help a child learn how to fall asleep independently. And some kids have learned it already by that age, the way your daughter did. But some and some parents do what's called sleep training, which just means helping them to learn how to fall asleep independently. Some people, some parents do do that at six months. But then when the child leaves the crib and goes into a larger bed, a toddler bed or a twin bed, many times you have to do it again because they're feeling their freedom, aren't they? They they know they can leave the bed and come and find you. So then parents often get in the pattern of lying down with their child to help them fall asleep and then leaving. And then that's an issue where their sleep crutch is gone when they wake up in the night. And of course they have to come and find their sleep crutch again, their parent again to get the job done, to get back to sleep. So it's not too late though, because the reason I wrote my book, which is called become your Child's sleep coach. And it's for ages, parents of kids, ages three to 10. I wrote that because when you look at books, on sleep training or helping children sleep, mostly you'll see baby spaces um, shining out at you from the bookshelf at the library or the bookstore. So I wanted to write a book for, for parents to teach them how to do it when the child is a little bit older and can walk and talk, which can be harder, but it's completely doable once you know what to do. So one of the things, and and parents are notorious for doing this, not just as it relates to sleep, but as it relates to pretty much every aspect of their child's life from birth until, you know, the parents are no longer around to keep track of them. We, We always try to figure out what's normal and, you know, and, and this comes into longer conversations about parental guilt about well you know whether you have the most expensive stroller and all these different sorts of things but as it relates to sleep tell me about and i know it changes you know based on the age of the child but what is normal for a child sure 
So if you want a great graphic, you can go to a website and it's the National Sleep Foundation and they have this really great graphic. And the reason I love it is it shows the ranges and it shows the typical normal range in blue and then it shows the low end of normal in yellow and the high end of normal in yellow above it. And it shows the age of children from birth and then takes you all the way through teenage years, adult years, and into, you know, older age. So it has all in one place this graphic that can help people, you know, parents figure out is my child sleeping the quote normal amount. So we'll make sure that the link to that graphic is in the notes for the show as well. I, I want to tell you about my 15 year old. Sure. Um, because one of the reasons that I embarked on this entire journey in the first place is because, um, you know, I'm averaging three or four hours of sleep a night and have for about the last 30 years to the point where uh, the guest we had on the second episode of the show, he's a, a world renowned uh, neuroscientist uh, named Dr. Adrian Owen. And Adrian was stunned that I function as highly as quote unquote highly as I do, because mm-hmm. that's how little sleep I get, partly because my alarm goes off for work at about two thirty or three o'clock in the morning. And I can't tell you the number of times that as I've staggered down the hallway past my 15 year old's room, I see all the lights on in yeah. her room yeah. and she's in there snoring away and there's her phone at her side. Um, and I can only imagine what that is doing to her on a day to day basis with things like cognition and stuff like that. So from my 15-year-old who's lying there with all the lights on, um, first of all, talk to me about the impact that that may or may not be having on her on a day-to-day basis. Because one of the things I, you know, we're all faced with, I think, as parents is we want better for them, but sometimes the, the trying to, I'll use this word gently, force better on them mm-hmm. is just going to get you nothing but resistance and pushback. So maybe if I had a better picture of what sleeping with her phone beside her and her lights on all night is doing to her, maybe that gives me a better place to start. So what am I looking at for that? Sure. So it's too late for your 15 year old, uh, not, not too late to help her, but I love it when parents start this as soon as children get any access to any sort of screen that there's sort of a house rule, so to speak that those are charged and kept out of the bedrooms at night. If you start that early, then sometimes you can carry right on through where, hey, we all charge. We all charge our phones and our tablets, you know, on the kitchen island at night. And that's just a great house rule to have. And then I've already headed in this direction a little bit in our conversation. I love it if every person in the household, young to old, has a reading light and a basket of books or magazines or drawing pads on the bedside, and even a teenager could learn to read themselves to sleep rather than using their phone. So if you can somehow head her in that direction so that she sort of finishes using her phone, turns the blue light off from dinner time on, as you already mentioned, um, and then puts leaves her phone downstairs before she goes upstairs, so to speak, to do her bedtime routine, and then she just curled up in bed with a book, with all the other lights in her room off and then just had her reading light, that would be ideal. So for someone who is in the position that she's in, I mean, first of all, I don't even, I don't even know enough about, um, you know, 
how sleep works in a 15 year old to know whether or not the lights being on all night, is that posing a problem for her? Do I need to put her lights on a timer? It's technically not posing a problem for her as long as she falls asleep and stays asleep all night. But there are other problems related to it. So again, we talked about sleep onset associations. She's developed a pattern where one of her sleep onset associations, and we all have multiple ones, we all like a certain side of the bed, a certain thickness of pillow, a certain kind of blanket, certain number of lights on. Even you probably have one little light on, a nightlight in the bathroom, or you know, a hall light or something. But she's learned to fall asleep with a lot of lights on um, for you know who knows what reason. But she's only going to get older and go off to college and, you know, get married and have a family. And it's unlikely that her roommate or her spouse is going to want to sleep in a well-lit room, (laughs) right? So she's developed a habit that doesn't necessarily hurt her as long as she, you know, you were to tell me she falls asleep and she stays asleep all night. But she's setting up a sleep environment that many other people would not agree with or want. And so for her, and, and this is one of the things um, that, that she and I have had a number of conversations about this, but I think as soon as dad starts sharing the little bits and pieces that he knows about sleep, you know, I get the teenage eye roll, et cetera. Um, one of the things that I've found fascinating on this journey is uh, it's it not necessarily about how tired you feel um, and that there are people who feel like they got enough sleep, but actually are having, you know, cognitive impairments and things of that nature because they didn't get enough sleep or at least on a chronic level. If you didn't get enough sleep last night, sure, there's a performance hit for today. But for people who regularly don't get enough sleep, that just becomes their new normal. Does it manifest in kids the same way that it does in adults? Yes. So kids who don't get enough sleep, there there are a variety of downsides to that. They can be poorer planners, you know, executive functioning. Um, If they're teenagers and they're driving a car, you can look up a lot of research on the fact that automobile accidents peak for adolescents in the early morning hours when they're driving themselves to school. They're not going to learn as well. They're not going to have a, a very good attention span. Mood suffers. Um, anxiety increases. So there are many downsides to not having enough sleep each night. Is the current state of, because as I mentioned earlier, you know, and it's a conversation that I've even had with people that run sleep labs, is that not everybody chooses to go to the sleep lab right out of the gate. And there are even, you know, uh, family doctors, uh, general practitioners and whatnot for whom get thee to a sleep lab isn't in their top three or four things that they will automatically suggest to a patient. Um, So for, uh, for a teenager is, are there obvious signs that for, for a parent where if this is happening, yeah, you need to get your kid into sleep to see a sleep specialist or, you know, uh, a, a, a sleep doctor of some kind. Is there something obvious that we should be looking for? Yes. So if it's really hard to get your child up for school every morning and it's a big fight, that's a clear signal, right? 
And that can be a big battle in a lot of American homes. I've heard stories you would not believe, you know, about what parents have tried to do to get their teenager up. So that's one obvious sign. And another one would be um, the kind of day-to-day functional things that we just talked about. You know, it takes them longer to do things. They have attentional issues, uh, mood issues, and so on. And then there's a third aspect that people should think about, which would be whether or not they have noticed any breathing-related problems with their teenager. Do they hear snoring coming from the room or gasping or choking? Or does their child report getting really hot at night? Does their child have any headaches in the morning? Has their child been diagnosed with ADHD or been put on a medication to improve their attention? If any of those things were true, I would absolutely recommend that they see a sleep specialist and rule out sleep apnea and get some help with from someone like me. I'm a behavioral sleep person, so I would help improve their routines, try to help them figure out how to achieve more sleep each night, even with the incredible load of things that teenagers often have to do between sports and academics and so on. So I think any teen who has those symptoms would benefit. What do you think of this movement that seems to be starting to gain some traction, particularly in America, about staggering uh, school times so that kids will get to school later in the day when they're arguably more functional? I could not be a bigger proponent. It's absolutely what should happen. There is so much research behind this that it's not even a question. Kids are driving when they're impaired. Their academics are suffering. Their mood is suffering. They feel anxious. I always say to parents, what if you had to get up at 3 a.m. to go to work on a regular basis? That would be so hard on you. And that's essentially what we're asking teenagers to do. Because when puberty hits, melatonin, the sleepy hormone, absolutely gets released later in their bodies than it did when they were a child, younger child. And so they really don't have that drive for sleep until much later. And then uh, left to their own devices, they would probably sleep something like 1 a.m., let's say midnight to 1 a.m. to about 9 a.m., left to their own devices. And they're really their biological preferences, but we're forcing them to get up really early when that's really not biologically what should be happening. And if you think about it, your little ones wake up easily and comfortably at six in the morning. So, and, you know, regularly without waking them at all, of course, at six in the morning or earlier. And so if we flipped the start times of elementary schools and high schools, we'd have a lot more happy, you know, the the kids would be a lot happier. Now, there, of course, are very complicated reasons why that can be hard, but is it the best plan? Yes, it is. So talk to me about the reasons why that's so hard, because to me, that feels like a no-brainer. And I've heard people that are making the argument, and I, I don't know enough about the subject to know if this argument holds water, but people are saying, you know what, we are doing this all based on the convenience of the parents and how easy it is for the parent to get, for example, a seven, eight or nine year old to school on time. We send them to school that early is because it's what's convenient for mom and dad. Is there any validity to that? That is probably easier for mom and dad if you think about it, because the older child, um, you know, they're sort of off on the bus or driving themselves. And then there's more time to get the little one ready. 
But to me, if you really do the math, you can figure out a way to manage any of these things. You know, there's something about the length of the workday that we're talking about here. There's athletic competitions. There's after-school jobs for teenagers. There's the fact that many teenagers serve as the daycare, if you think about it, until the parents get home. So parents want the teenagers getting home first. But you could add after-school programs. You could reprogram the bus schedules. You could get everyone in an athletic division to agree to change the competition times for sports. There are ways around all of the the problems that are put forth, and there's not a single school district that has changed to the this new system that has ever gone back. So where are the states where this is taking hold? Because I know there are some places where this has become the norm. Where yes. like where where have they got this nailed down? Honestly, a lot of the states where this has gotten nailed down are states with a strong sleep medicine training program where there are a lot of sleep doctors in that state. Um, so for example, um, there is a very well-known sleep doctor who was at Brown and some of the towns around Providence made the change. And there was some very prominent work done around Washington, D.C., and many of those towns have made the change. Um, California almost did it as a state. It made it through the legislation and was voted on, and then it was vetoed by the governor. On what basis? Well, on what basis do you take something that basically everybody agrees on, including yeah. science? Well, mind you, I'm thinking now of a whole list of things that scientists agree on that never pass <laughs> the bar in terms of legislation. Um, but let's stick with the sleep thing for a second. On what basis do they veto that? Why would they? What ground do they have to stand on? I'm not even sure why he did that. I'm sure there was some pressure put upon him, but I don't know by whom. But we all heaved a big sigh because we were almost there for an entire state. Can you imagine how, you know, how great that would have been for an entire state to switch over at once? So how close are you in your home state of Connecticut, which is also my 15-year-old's home state? Um, yeah. how, how close is Connecticut to getting in um, line on this? There are Greenwich made the switch. Wilton made the switch. Guilford's working on it. And Westport is working on it. And as those towns go, often so goes the state. Because those towns are towns with a lot of resources, shall we say, and they will often hire experts to come in and talk to the school boards because that's really where you have to start. And if you present the facts and the data to an educated populace, they will make the decision to change the school start times. The data is all there. And the benefits for the children are all there. Very clear to see in the data. Well, it's interesting, too, when you think of Connecticut, uh, for those who aren't aware, I think is still in many circles thought of as the insurance capital of the world. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and so if you think of all the medical insurance folks that have a stake in our kids being healthier and performing at a higher level, you know, I think of my daughter who's going to school in South Windsor, uh, you know, a couple of miles away from the head offices of all of the big insurance companies. And I yeah. think, wow, you'd think up in that part of the state, it would be an easier sell. But it sounds to me like it's all at the south and southwest corner that everything's really taking hold so far. For the most part, that's true. And there may be other districts that are working on it that I'm unaware of, but there there is a movement afoot. And there is a national clearinghouse now called Start School Later, which is based in Washington. 
Is there still uh, this unfortunate tendency because, um, and it's funny, during the time that I lived in Connecticut, I was I was part of a study involving um, uh, general practitioners and family doctors who, you know, we were asking them for their thoughts on uh, diet, exercise, things like that. And we were surprised by how many family doctors came back and said, you know what, I hate when my patients ask me about diet and exercise because it's an entirely different branch of medicine. It's something that we spend a cursory amount of time on in med school, but not enough that I can sit here and dish out, you know, expertise on on these things. So most of what I'm able to tell people is eat less, exercise more. Uh, Mind you, that's almost 20 years ago now that we did that survey among the doctors. But are we still at a point with sleep and sleep medicine where for a lot of doctors, the the first answer is things like medication. Is that still where we are or are we becoming more attuned to the fact that no, no, this is you you need to go to an expert on this? I think that we're still at the point where a doctor might say, well, why don't you try melatonin? We even call it we jokingly call it vitamin M um, in sleep circles because it's quote unquote prescribed so often it's um putting that in quotes because it's obviously available over the counter. But there's hardly a family that I see in the pediatric sleep clinic where I work where that family has not tried melatonin. It's really the first thing they'll try. It's often the first thing that a pediatrician will recommend. Again, because it's quicker, they don't have enough time to spend with these families on things like health, behavior, sleep, and diet, and exercise. They have less and less time to see their patients, and they don't get, again, a lot of training on sleep in medical school, similarly to diet and exercise. So I think sometimes they just, they would love to, but they don't have the time to spend. And I go out every month and do um, continuing education at lunch with pediatric practices, and they love to know that there's a sleep center where they can send their families whose kids aren't sleeping well. They love to hand that off because, again, they don't have a lot of training and they don't have a lot of time. Does most insurance cover sleep studies for kids? Absolutely. Because of the reasons you mentioned, it heads off things that cost more money, right? So if you think of in the adult world, uh, insurance would pay for a sleep study because it might head off or lower the risk of a stroke or heart attack or hypertension, high blood pressure. And so they save money by having a sleep study done and then treating sleep apnea rather than having to handle the problems down the road that might come from untreated sleep apnea. Tell me if there's something that I I should have asked you about, but that we haven't gotten to yet. Uh, mm-hmm. Like, you know, as I think about the book and the book is fascinating, um, you know, even if your kids are older, I know it says ages three to 10, um, mm-hmm. but it's it's. There's a lot of critical information even there for teenagers and even young adults, at least I think so. Um, is is there stuff that we should have covered that I didn't get to? There's one more thing that I would throw into the mix here, and that is that parents often do two things with all the right intentions that result in worse sleep for their children. We talked about the first one, which is sort of sticking around in their bedrooms, helping them get to sleep which feels very cozy. And as a parent, we all know the joys of snuggling with our kids. But if you stick around until they're completely asleep, they're going to need you again. And so in my book, I talk about gentle way to help them fall asleep independently. 
But the second thing parents often do, um, they're what I call granting too many callbacks and curtain calls. <laughs> so again, every parent knows that once you try to head out of your child's bedroom, they're going to call you back for a variety of creative reasons. And then sometimes when you think they're asleep, they're going to show up and make a curtain call in the living room and tell you that they're still awake and they don't feel sleepy at all. And there are some really great ways to manage those two. And um, I have a nice method in my book called Bedtime Ticket. So it's just a way to give your child uh, two little tickets that you make during the day and you decorate them with glitter or stickers, whatever you might like, and you hand them over to your child when you head out of their room. And when they call you back, you just exchange a ticket for whatever they want uh, once and then twice for the two tickets. And then you're going to cue them to just read until they're drowsy enough to fall asleep. And that can head off that, you know, 17 more callbacks and curtain calls that kids might like to make because they, they love you and they want to see you some more. So that's just a nice way to manage that that a lot of parents um, enjoy using. Let me ask you about this, and I know this goes probably beyond the scope of the book, but I'm uh, as we're talking about all the and curtain calls and callbacks and all that, I'm reminded of, and forgive me if this, if this is an obscure reference, mm-hmm. the episode of the TV series Mad About You, which oh, I love, uh, Paul Reiser, Helen Hunt, um, where, uh, where they are literally sitting on the floor with their backs to the baby's bedroom door listening to the baby cry and feeling like the worst parents in the world. Talk to me about letting them cry it out. I mean, it's not a a thing that we frankly dealt with very much because we had the snoo. Right. Um, and the snoo helped with a lot of the, are they going to cry it out? Are they going to go back to sleep sort of thing? But for most parents, talk to me about crying it out. Is that a good idea? Is it a terrible idea? Are we bad people if we let our kids do that? Right. That's, that's such a common question. And for me, I always tell the families that I work with, it's definitely a personal choice. The main goal, whether you do cry it out or what are called um, controlled checking, you know, where you check every five minutes, every 10 minutes, every 15 minutes, your real goal is to separate your child's need for you to be able to fall asleep. So for most babies, of course, it's being bottle fed or breastfed to sleep. And you can work on that without doing any cry it out. For example, you could feed your child at around bedtime. And then you could make sure that they're awake again by maybe changing their diaper, walking them around the room and saying goodnight to the various animals in the room, the stuffed animals, and then putting them in to the crib and letting them finish the job of falling, you know, going from wake to sleep. You know, they'll say drowsy, but awake, right? That's the phrase they use. And many times kids won't stay drowsy. They'll wake up and basically let you know they want more than that. But you could sit nearby just providing your quiet presence while they're figuring out how to do that. Or you could go completely out of the room and wait again, five minutes, then 10 minutes, then 15. Some parents believe it's better to go out and wait and give them quite a bit of time to figure it out. So it's really a personal preference, but most parents end up wanting at some point to help their kids learn how to do that independently. And there are multiple ways to get there. Let's make sure we know every, where everyone uh, knows how to find the book, how to find you, uh, all the social media stuff. Like let's, let's go through the whole list of all the places we can find both you and the book. Sure. 
So the book is available, as they say, wherever books are sold. So it's on Amazon and Barnes and Noble. It's in bookstores and so on. That's, uh, it's easy to find. Become your child's sleep coach. And then you can find me really on all the other platforms just with my last name and and Dr. Dr. So just Dr. Schneeberg, which is D-R-S-C-H-N-E-E-B-E-R-G. So that's how I am on Twitter. My website is drschneeberg.com or thebedtimedoctor.com. And my website has, I hope people will find, a lot of useful resources, especially under the blog tab. I've written lots and lots of articles on kids and sleep and how to get past the most common sleep issues. Bedwetting at a later age, maybe seven um, nightmares, night terrors, how to help a child get ready for a sleep study, common mistakes parents make at bedtime, and so on. And then I'm on LinkedIn and Instagram and even Pinterest, where a lot of moms are, um, and so on. And it's always under my name, Dr. Schneeberg or Dr. Linnell Schneeberg. One more question for you. Is there something that we as parents can do to model better sleep behaviors for our kids? Yes. So I think having a bedtime routine at all is really great modeling. So finishing up your work, straightening up, you know, doing the last few things around the kitchen, straightening things up, and then going up and having a routine where you wash up, brush your teeth, wash your face, you know, put on your pajamas and get in bed and read for a little while. Modeling that, I think, is really important. I think a lot of parents are starting to worry that kids aren't going to read as much. There's a new book out that I would love to recommend called How to Raise a Reader. And it's by the New York Times uh, book editor and the New York Times children's book editor. And one of their main recommendations is being sure that your children see you reading. So that's a great thing to model. It's just a really nice, relaxing bedtime routine that ends with reading. That's terrific. Um, I'm, I'm so grateful you had time for this today. Um, and, and again, we'll make sure that all the contact information and the links to the book and all of that are in the show notes. Um, but uh, I'm, I, I can't thank you enough for this. Well, you're so welcome. I'm so thankful that you had me on. Thanks so much. There you go. Dr. Linnell Schneeberg from Connecticut Children's Medical Center, also assistant professor at the Yale School of Medicine and the author of Become Your Child's Sleep Coach. The link to get to the book is in the show notes. You'll also find it at the snoozebutton.com slash podcast, along with a ton of other links that are waiting for you there. Contest page, a way to leave a message or a question for our panel of sleep experts. Super easy way to rate and review the show, leave feedback. Uh, there's links to our social media stuff in there if you want to uh, make a, a donation to the show to help keep it commercial free and keep the doors open. That link is there as well. And also recall that if you are crunched for time but you love the info, there are nine-minute versions of every episode with a different podcast that we call the Snooze Button Express. And you'll find the link for that on our website as well. Back next week with another brand new episode. Until then, my name is Neil Headley. Hey, get some sleep, would you? Hey.